This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Not especially committed to any sort of look or feel. It's kind of just been evolving over time. It's nice to let it be and and become as it does. Today, we have one of our dispatches from the home garden. In mid-October, this gardener reached out to me and wrote, I'm a landscape architect, gardener, restoration ecologist, and cook in conversation with my garden in Boulder, Colorado. Her conversation with her garden inspired me to have a conversation with her. We'll be right back. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today we enjoy another of our dispatches from the home garden. It's been some time since we've had one, and I'm excited to dive back in. In mid-October, this gardener reached out to me and wrote, I am a landscape architect, gardener, restoration ecologist, and cook. And she shared with me an essay she had written about four ash trees in her garden and the sense of doom and perspective she held, knowing that the emerald ash borer was not far away. She wrote, quote, My garden is a conversation with nature and natural processes. I love making life and death decisions in this arena, but it remains a conversation and I am committed to the listening part as well. This means making space for the unexpected, even these agents of destruction, end quote. I knew right away that I wanted to hear more about her ongoing life conversation with her garden. Our home gardener joins us today via Skype from her home and garden in Boulder, Colorado. I will let her take it from here. My name is Eileen Flax. I'm 48 and I garden in Boulder, Colorado. We are zone five. I am a landscape architect and my work focuses on public sector projects like parks and trails and public housing, schools and drainage projects. I grew up on Long Island and I've lived in Boulder for about 26 years now. Um, I moved here right after college. We originally got here on a whim. Um, I had spent some time with the Student Conservation Association in um, Salmon, Idaho, and fell in love with the West. And um, after college, I just knew I needed to be somewhere with a bigger sky. I didn't do a lot of gardening growing up. I had a grandfather who um, gardened on a posted stamp size lot in Queens, New York. And it was very much an old world garden. He really maximized the vegetables in that space. And so he was an important influence to me. Um, I studied biology in school. And then when I got to college at uh, Connecticut College, I started studying ecology and botany um, there. And that really got me 
diving into the world of Lance. So I learned a fair amount about Lance through that lens of their uh, structure and function, but not really the gardening piece of it. Um, and then after college, I moved back. I moved to uh, Boulder, Colorado, and again fell in love with the the big sky. I did some gardening here. I worked on a an iris farm, and I was trying to find a way to utilize my skills in ecology and botany. But so much of the work surrounding that had to do with addressing how humans have corrupted our ecosystem and how how it was. I found it very disheartening. And so when I heard about the field of landscape architecture, I really grasped onto that. It seemed like just the right thing to be doing to be able to create places that um, support biodiversity and the water cycle and the human experience and the things that we need. And so you've been in Boulder 20 years. Have you been in the same house for that and garden for that same amount of time, or have you moved? This has been my only garden. I've been in this house for about 20 years, and I, I didn't have a garden before that. And so um, I was really, by the time we had our house and a place to really dig in, I was so ready for it and just really hungry for being able to, to have my own personal impact on the, the garden. Yeah. So you've been in this garden for 20 years, and I just can't even imagine being in the same garden for 20 years, Eileen. What, what <laughs> both like a, a, a huge responsibility and a great joy, like both things together. Tell me what you envisioned as what is essentially a young adult and coming into this house and starting your garden and and then describe maybe the process over time. When we bought our house, it was very much a typical suburban lot, a lot of bluegrass, even here in Boulder, and some trees and some shrubs that um, the former owners had put in. The process has really been to subtract some bluegrass every year. So probably the first 10 or 15 years of uh, I kind of did a project every year and where I took out some grass and put in some more garden. And um, it's really evolved over time. It's very much playground or a laboratory. Um, the things that I think about at work and, and I'm learning about through my practice, I try to implement or experiment with in my home garden on a much different scale. And so not especially committed to any sort of look or feel. It's kind of just been evolving over time. It's nice to let it be and and become as it does. I just kind of move with it and it's, it's just evolved through time. I will often do a round in the garden starting either out my back door or my front door. But if I start out my front door, um, there's a big Norway maple in the front yard and big for a tree here in Boulder is probably a 50 foot tree. It's not huge, but it creates a lot of shade during the summer. I have that whole area planted with bulbs that come up in the spring and then in the summer it's a dry shade. So I have all kinds of ground covers like finca and coral bells and 
money wart and forget me nots and those all kind of just fill in through the summer Hmm. the rest of the front yard is a lot of pass along plants i do a lot of sharing with neighbors and friends and uh, just experimenting with how colors go together and how plants will grow and just what comes about comes about it also seems to be a lot of uh experience in setting boundaries that I've learned that's (laughs) part of the gardening practice is just saying, you know, I love lemon balm. It smells wonderful, but it, it doesn't let others um, hang out with it very much. So it has to, (laughs) it can't be there anymore. So there's a lot of that that goes on. Coming around the South side of the house, we put in raised beds using the beetle kill pine. Mm-hmm. And so we have our vegetables in there. And I'm glad that I don't rely on my own gardening to feed our family because it's kind of haphazard and it doesn't, doesn't always turn out so well, but we always have some peas and onions and garlic and tomatoes and zucchini, um, spinach, through there. I have berries in a bed together, raspberries and strawberries and blackberries. So they kind of fight it out with one another. (laughs) I have the area adjacent to that. I recently um, started putting in buffalo grass plugs and experimenting with that uh, different kind of turf. And that whole area has been um, kind of a bomb for, for me in being able to hand weed through the area. I've worked on a number of large-scale restoration projects where the um, the weeds can really compromise the growth of the grasses, and it's very frustrating on the scale of hundreds of acres. So by being able to do that in this very small space, it's it's kind of a relief and very satisfying to just be able to get rid of the cheatgrass and the bindweed as it comes in and let the buffalo grass really take off and do its thing. Mm -hmm. When we're at the raised vegetable beds with the the beetle kill pine, you are in basically your back garden. Is that correct? Um, I'm sort of on the side of the house there. Good. And so then keep us going around to, to the back garden and I believe you have several named spaces in, in your garden. Right. So the backyard is, um, there's a big, what I'm calling a pollinator lawn or a tough love lawn. (laughs) This is um, bluegrass, but there are all kinds of other species that are in there. And um, I'm really um, trying to cultivate those and, and make a space for the clover and the plantain and the violets in that area so that, um, there's just more diversity. It does have some appeal to the critters. It's not just one thing, but it also can support us playing badminton in the backyard and, and running around and using that space for gatherings. Yeah. So the lawn is sort of surrounded by, um, there are some additional raised beds on the side of it. And then there's the playset area. So when the kids were little, that was a lot of climbing and trapeze kinds of things. Now it's mostly hammocks and slowed down teenager kind of activities through there, but it remains uh, a pleasant gathering space for everybody. 
in part because there's the shade of the ash trees that are <laughs> surrounding that. So um, I, we are we are enjoying that shade and the space that they create um, for as long as we can at this point. Yeah. Um, surrounding that place, that area is a fairy garden. So that's a dry shade area. And we have sweet woodruff and I think a major and minor. Again, a lot of bulbs through there. And then we have little follies and art pieces that my daughter, my daughter is an artist and um, she creates all kinds of sculptures and clay work and that all gets, finds a home in that space. The other portions of the backyard have a lot of functional um, uses. There's some sheds, there's the compost area. We have the all the different bins of compost in their various stages um, <laughs> for the leaves and the uh, indoor waste and the outdoor waste and as it processes and becomes actual usable compost. And then we have a number of wood racks around the, around the backyard because we have a wood fire stove in our house that keeps us warm all winter and so we stack up the wood and that kind of creates uh, some organization in the backyard as well. Yeah. What elevation are you at there in Boulder? We're about um, 5480, I believe, just a little more than a mile high. And what gardening zone is that? It is zone five. It's a very dry area. So um, we do we do have moisture, but um, the air is so dry that uh, plants dry out very quickly. And mm -hmm. so um, all everything is adapted to uh, dry <laughs> lack of water. Um, we have 300 days of sunshine here in Boulder. So a lot of a lot of warmth and a lot of uh, desiccation on our plants. Yeah, it's a it's also um, not predictable weather, so we'll get huge temperature swings, um, and that that can be really hard on a lot, a lot of plants. Yeah, and it is an a, an arid environment uh, throughout the year, and I think I want to say I looked this up and Boulder gets something like twenty inches of precipitation a year um, accumulated, which is which is not a lot. And so drought tolerance and adaptation is important in such a space. And you can hear from some of your plant choices and the way you have things set up that you are working with this quite actively. Are native plants a part of your ongoing conversation with your garden? Is this something, especially as someone who came from the green and hardwood forests of the east to the much more open and arid environment of the west, what is your relationship with native plants? I have been including natives more and more in my garden and especially more and more in my practice. I, I am a little uncomfortable I love that natives are so well adapted and can perform so many functions in the garden. They support 
critters and they're beautiful and they don't require a lot of maintenance and they don't require a lot of water. And so they're, they're good contributors to the space. I get a little uncomfortable with the jingoistic nature of talking about <laughs> natives because there are so many other plants that can do a lot and do contribute to the garden and you know can can do all of those things in supporting an ecosystem so i try to let the best plants in but that certainly has evolved over time i have i still have a lot of carl forrester grass in my garden which is a terrific grass except that it doesn't support anybody any of the critters here and so it's it creates a little bit of habitat and it looks beautiful for a significant part of the year but it, it's not really doing enough and i've stopped i've stopped using it anywhere else but it's it remains here in my garden still This week, we're joined by home gardener and landscape architect Eileen Flax of Boulder, Colorado. She's sharing with us her home garden journey story, one that for me brings to mind the resolutions I am continuing to consider for 2019. Eileen's ongoing conversation with her garden gives me plenty of food for thought on this resolutions for 2019 front. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. Hey, so you might have noticed that in the end credits, I now have a new teammate. Sky Schofield is the new engineer on most of the podcast programs out of North State Public Radio here in Northern California. We're a small station with a small but mighty staff. When the campfire roared through our region, the staff here stepped up and have been reporting their hearts out ever since. In this fray, Sarah Bohannon, producer of Cultivating Place, stepped more fully into her role as news director here at the station, as well as being now engaged overtime in working with new reporters, both on staff and volunteers and visitors to produce outstanding coverage for our immediate listening area. So while Sarah is still the official producer, I hope you will all welcome Sky to the team with me. Sky was born and raised in Northern California, specifically Redding, California. He graduated from Humboldt State and studied journalism there. He is a member of the Wintoon and Pitt River nations of this region. Sky loves documentary, technology, electricity, and renewable resource research and engineering. Sky is now engineering the program weekly, as well as other NSPR podcasts, including Blue Dot, named after Carl Sagan's famous speech about our place in the universe. It features interviews with guests from all over the regional, national, and worldwide scientific communities. Blue Dot's host, Dave Schloem, leads discussions about the issues science is helping us address with experts who shed light on climate change, space exploration, astronomy, technology, and much more. Dave asks us to remember, from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. With Sky Engineering and Dave hosting, it's great. You should check it out. Now, back to our December dispatches from the home garden, 
with Eileen Flax of Boulder, Colorado. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back after a break to hear more about Eileen Flax's home garden journey story in this Dispatches from the Home Garden episode. Welcome back. When you look at this garden that you've had this ongoing conversation with, you've you've raised your family in, and you clearly are you plan to be in relationship with this garden for a long time to come. What are your greatest challenges or or heartaches in this garden? So trees are not happy here in Boulder. It's just very harsh conditions. And I've lost two trees that I planted, one a mountain ash and one well, one is a purple robe black locust, and it's still here, but it's riddled with uh, holes. And it has these beautiful panicles of purple flowers every spring. And so I I haven't had the heart to take it all the way out, though it's trying. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been losing limbs every year. And then um, I anticipate losing these four ash trees in my yard in the coming years. And it's really sad to see them go because they are so beautiful, especially in the fall. They're, they've been really good contributors to my garden and they create so much really pleasant shade underneath them. And they've supported lots of birds and, and critters through the years. So I'm, I will be sad to lose them. And you talked in when when you first wrote to me, you talked a little bit about the calculation you went through, emotional and practical, as to whether or not you would spray. Well, our community has come to terms with the is starting to come to terms with the emerald ash borer by saying high value trees should be treated. And so you know, thinking about what is a high value tree has been part of my coming to terms with what I should do in my own yard. Um, I love trees. They're all high value. But um, these particular trees are not, they're not holding the whole landscape together. They're not doing something particularly important for my community or for the world around me. They are just in my yard. So one of them lost its leader many years ago, and we we call it a fist tree because it it doesn't go up and out like you would want a tree to go. It, It kind of curls in on itself a little bit. And so it's, it doesn't have a beautiful form. Another one of them is right at the back property line. And so it's it has the power lines run through it. And every few years, the power company uh, arborists come through and their idea of pruning a tree is not my idea of pruning a tree. <laughs> so it's, it's had a very funny form to it. And then the other two are just kind of small and straggly. They, they, haven't, they haven't done all that much. And I haven't None of these trees have been um, ones that I planted or cared for from the beginning. So they've just kind of, they, I believe, all planted themselves before I even moved in. 
and they've been growing along the way, but they they aren't extraordinary specimens. And so I'm I'm okay with letting them move on. And there are other trees, kind of. There's an understory already waiting. Um, I have a redbud and a maple and an oak tree all kind of underneath them that are kind of small and I anticipate they'll appreciate having a little extra light and some additional resources to fill in the gaps. Mm -hmm. And so I think you had told me that there was indication of the borer on at least one of them already. That's right. I'm seeing these uh, D-shaped holes in the in the bark of uh, a couple of them. So, and they've just been losing limbs. They mm-hmm. they often lose limbs every year, but it seems like that rate has increased. So yeah. I'm I'm thinking that they're really struggling. Now, for listeners, describe the emerald ash borer and its sort of march across the country. The emerald ash borer attacks the uh, American ash trees and they lay their eggs in the bark and then they tunnel out and um, and they are very effective in killing the tree. It happens to be a beautiful insect. It's this bright green color and it's just, it looks just lovely, but um, it has been steadily moving west and it was found here in Boulder a few years ago was the first sighting of it and the the city has been making some serious efforts to address it either choosing selecting which trees will be treated and which trees are, are we're going to let go and and planting successionally so that there are other species coming up um, in our urban forest but um, our urban forest has something like 16%, I believe, of the trees are, are ash trees. So the idea of losing all of those in our community is, is really shocking. Mm-hmm. And when you say treat, what is the treatment for the emerald ash borer there? So the treatment for emerald ash borer is a pesticide that um, needs to be uh, applied, um, I believe it's every other year in perpetuity. Um, and that that kind of ongoing treatment is required in order to be effective. Mm-hmm. And did that weigh in your decision to let your trees go? I am not willing to include those chemicals in my in my home garden. Um, the The pesticides that are treating the insects are certain to have an impact on all kinds of other insects and and with it the rest of the food chain. And I'm. I'm just not comfortable supporting that in my garden. There are too many other repercussions that I can't predict that I know I don't want here. As hard as it is to say goodbye to these trees, I'd rather have them go and have something else happen than than start down the line of having the, um, the ash borers dying and seeing what other repercussions there are from that pesticide. Yeah, yeah. So 
you have raised your children in in this garden. Are there sort of favorite life memories that you have in this garden that are somehow kind of held in the garden, as it were? You described the place set and you described the fairy garden and that your daughter is an artist. And so I can kind of hear your family narrative through those elements. Are there are there others that you would share with us? Well, as I said, every year for many years, I would have sort of a project or a new garden and we would take a Mother's Day photo somewhere in that space. Um, Mother's Day is always kind of a gardening holiday to me. Um, <laughs> it's it's right when um, we have our last frost date here in Boulder. And so it always involves some planting and then taking a picture in the new garden. And um, so those memories are certainly sprinkled around our garden. Um, we've had a, a couple of uh, life cycle events. Um, my my daughter's bat mitzvah and my son's bar mitzvah and having the whole family come and um, occupy the space, having friends and family here occupying that space, it kind of, their energy kind of resides there as well. Yeah, yeah. And would you describe yourself as social in your, in your garden or solitary or both? Well, my actual gardening, I think, is quite solitary, but I have um, I have a dear friend right across the street who also gardens, and our relationship is very much based in the garden, though it has evolved beyond that. Um, and another dear friend across town who we kind of garden back and forth with each other, sharing plants and sharing stories. I'm also part of the Martin Acres Neighborhood Garden Club, and we get together about once a month during the growing season and share chit-chat and stories and plants and techniques and visit each other's gardens. It's um, It runs the gamut. We have master gardeners, and we have people who have just are just starting their first garden and really are just trying to figure out um, which end is green. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, it's a lot of fun. And it, it's, it's such a good way to meet my neighbors and know the people who live in my community. We, um, we have planted a median at the entry to the neighborhood, and so we planted and maintained that area. Mm. And then we often, every year we have a pass-along plant gathering where we just share plants with neighbors. And these are all the best adapted plants to this neighborhood, and we share them back and forth. And people who don't garden are just so amazed that we're willing to share these plants, but you know that the ones that grow best grow, they grow lots and lots of them. And it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to share them. Yeah. Yeah. And how, at what point in your gardening history there, did you become part of such a group? Was that early on or was that sort of midway through? 
pretty much midway through. I think we formed probably just 10 years or so ago. We started getting together. And and about how many, how many are you in the group? Our meetings usually include about 10 people, and there are probably 40 people on the email list. So it, it varies who, who comes to each one. I think yeah. I'm, I'm one of the more committed members, but there are lots of people who come and drift in and drift out as they can. Eileen Flax is a landscape architect, gardener, restoration ecologist, and cook in Boulder, Colorado. She's joining us today as one of our dispatches from the Home Garden episodes. Like many people in the West, water is always an issue in Colorado. And in Boulder, gardeners receive an average of about 20 inches of rainfall a year. Eileen wrote, quote, My garden is an expression of water. Every downspout is thoughtfully directed. We don't have an automatic irrigation system, in part because I so enjoy visiting with my plants as I water. End quote. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Hey, it's me, Jennifer. With a terrible cold that has only gotten worse throughout this episode, Oh dear, it will be better next week. So here's something I've been wondering. Are you the kind of person to make New Year's resolutions? I almost always do. I make them on my own birthday, my personal New Year, and again sometime between the winter solstice and the calendar New Year. I try to make them about positive things to do rather than bad habits to fix. I already started talking about my intentions and resolutions in last week's episode in the book roundup, and this concept of Eileen's about being in conversation with her garden certainly has me thinking about my intentions for my conversation with my garden this coming year. But it also has me thinking about my conversations with you. As I reflect back on 2018, we certainly covered a lot of ground, and I'm curious, what did you like best? I received a lot of positive feedback about the series we did in early fall, the seed series and the botanical artistry series. And so I have two missions or homework assignments for you if you choose to accept them. The first one is this, I'd really love to hear some of your garden related resolutions for the new year. I'm gonna compile some of them into the January newsletter. If you don't already subscribe to the monthly A View From Here newsletter, make that your first completed resolution and just do it. If you're still listening to this episode and you don't subscribe, go do it already. It really does help me stay in touch with you more directly. And right after you subscribe to the newsletter, send me a note with your top three garden-themed resolutions for the coming year. Your second assignment I know this is a lot to take in, but just trust me and go with it. Your second assignment is to send me some thoughts on topics for series you'd like me to dive into for 2019. A handful have already crossed my mind. Art and sculpture gardens, botanic gardens, herbariums, native plant gardens and gardeners, indigenous plants people, Latina Latino gardeners, herbalists, the list could go on forever, I suppose. What would you add to it? 
please let me know. Send me an email at cultivatingplace at gmail.com or leave a note on this week's episode notes at Instagram or Facebook. And I'm serious. I'm trying to live up to one of my New Year's resolutions, people. I need your help to do it. Now, back to our December dispatches from the home garden with Eileen Flax of Boulder, Colorado. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back after a break to hear more about the garden journey story of Eileen Flax in Boulder, Colorado, on this Dispatches from the Home Garden episode. Welcome back. What is your favorite time of year in your garden, Eileen? I love the spring. It's it's so so predictable and so so the the rebirth is such a joyful thing all the bulbs have enough energy and they've stored up water over the winter and so they kind of come up in their symphony first the crocuses and then the daffodils and then the tulips and there's so much bright color then it's it's fun yeah yeah and what about your favorite time of day do you have a ritual you talked about maybe doing your rounds. Um, yeah, describe your favorite time of day. So during the summer when the heat can be somewhat oppressive as the sun goes down and things cool off and I can visit all my plants and give them a drink with the hose if they need it. I just love that sort of lingering time in the garden as uh, as the world cools off and I can connect with all my plants. Yeah, yeah. And would you say that your garden reflects you as a person? And if, if so, how would you see that? My garden is very much a functional space. It's laid out so that the wheelbarrow can get through and that the hose can extend from one end to the other. And those um, those functional pieces are very much a piece of who I am. I, I like to make things work and get things done. I think the idea that form follows function is very much part of how I, I think about it. Mm-hmm. You have a couple of other sort of aspects of this this concept of being in conversation with your garden. And one of them has to do with, with the climate that you live in and its arid nature. And you describe not having an irrigation system. Describe that for listeners. I have laid out the whole garden so that it's accessible from one long hose that kind of reaches from the far end of the backyard all the way to the far end of the front yard. And um, part of that is because I really enjoy that process of visiting my plants and watering them. We also have worked to direct water from paved surfaces and the roof of the house into the garden so that the plants are supported by um, the additional water that comes from there. So we have downspouts that splash onto rocks and 
go into the garden and then we have another downspout that goes into a little drainage swale that's planted with some more water loving species um, species that love both water and are happy to be in drought conditions as well mm-hmm. um, we put in a rain barrel right after the um, Colorado started allowing rain bo- barrels there are water rights issues associated with that so now we're allowed to have one and um, that's that's a fun piece to to just be able to open up the rain barrel and add some water to a, a bucket rather than having to use the municipal water system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, I was I was born and raised in Colorado, and my father sat on the water board, and this was a oh, constant wow. point of uh, contention was that it was illegal to harvest rainwater in Colorado, that every drop that fell over the state belonged to the state. And I say, you know, whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting. (laughs) (laughs) It's terrible. (laughs) Oh, dear. So I want to come back because you you kind of cut it a little bit short. And I want you to linger there a little bit longer, Eileen. This, I I have recollection of my mother dragging her hose which seemed like it was about three miles long everywhere in the garden in Colorado and I you would think why like why are you why are you being so labor-intensive crazy woman and (laughs) it wasn't of course until I was older that I came to understand there was this great there was this great communion that took place in this act describe why you drag a like irritatingly long hose all over your property Eileen I really enjoy connecting with my plants and giving them some water and so I've laid out the garden so that I can reach all the plants that need an extra drink with the one hose. And there are um, edges that I can pull the hose along and I can um, pull it out to where it needs to go. Then there are places in the garden that are a little further away that, that really have to do with less water because they just aren't connected to this line of uh, where the hose can reach. I enjoy the process of, of giving them a drink and seeing them perk up with it and enjoy that connection. So when you look at your garden, you look at the work you do in this world, which it sounds very much like you do quite a bit of important public work. And you are also coming to both of these areas of your life with the the perspective of a restoration ecologist, someone who's looking at all of the systems in their place and how to support them or, or restore them, as it were. What are your hopes for your garden and the garden community you work in as a whole as we move forward in, in this world on this planet? As I said, my garden is a conversation with nature and natural processes, and my being able to engage in that 
on this very personal level is very important to me. And I've really owned what a critical piece of my understanding of myself in relation to the world around me comes from being able to engage in this conversation in my backyard, in my dailies. And um, for me, I certainly hope to continue that conversation on and on. And for the world around me, I hope that others can realize that they are engaging in that conversation, whether they're aware of it or not. Um, we are always connected to the natural world and, and just deepening into that understanding that you're, you're part of it. And we all have, have our needing to listen and hear what, the natural world is telling us and and realize the power of those larger systems um the more we all kind of tap into that conversation the more in balance we can move towards becoming and right now as as we speak it's december there in your garden in boulder Describe what it what it looks like and what it feels like right now, and maybe give us a description of one of your favorite spots in the garden at this time of year. So one of the wonderful things about Boulder and 300 days of sunshine is that while we get some very cold, snowy times, we also get some warm, wonderful weather um, where we can be outside and, and enjoy it, a sunny time. So um, even through the winter, I kind of look for opportunities to get out in the garden and do a little this or that because it, it means so much to me. Um, I still have a lot of green leaves in the uh, green ground covers that kind of brighten up things. There's also a lot of floppy dead plants that probably aren't doing a whole lot right now, but um, <laughs> being flopped over. <laughs> As you look towards 2019 and you think about your Mother's Day project next year, what do you have any New Year's garden resolutions or plans? Um, so the buffalo grass plugging that I did last year is not quite finished. I had taken a seed packet I got at a conference and I had planted that initially in one area. And then last year I kind of dug that all up and divided it up into a bigger area. And so I'm going to do that again next year and finish that whole side of the, that whole area. So I'm looking forward to doing that piece of it. Yeah. And buffalo grass is a is a fabulous plant in that it is native to to the inner mountain west and it's a warm season grass so it it takes a long time to green up in the spring but when it does that flush of kind of it's almost a blue green and it's just beautiful and it has a lovely little form even on its own it's a little clump not in mass but just you know individual clumps of it is very pretty it 
It seems to also have a little color to its flower, maybe a bluey tinge to it. Mm. And and then the um, the runners kind of come out. They seem to want to reach out over the pavement in particular, but um, it has all kinds of runners that are trying to spread from each plant too. So it, it's a very satisfying kind of thing that's growing there. A strong will to live, like like our gardens themselves, right? In, indeed. Indeed. Is there anything else you would like to add, Eileen? I didn't talk about my paths, and those are kind of important to me. Um, the paths through my gardens are give the rest of my family a way to feel like they can access it. I, I don't mind walking wherever I feel like walking. I know what I'm stepping on, but they get a little nervous. And so I've worked pretty hard on developing pathways through the garden and using um, found and recycled materials for those paths. And so that's I've had a lot of fun with putting in um, – crushed stone and then all the rocks that seem to grow in my garden get embedded in that stone or um, the bark from the wood that we burn in our uh, stove I use for paths as well and brick pavers that I've kind of recycled from other projects I've uh, enjoyed making into pathways I like working with bricks because it's the right scale for me. When I've tried to work with bigger stones, I end up hurting myself. But the brick pavers, I'm always very comfortable kind of laying or relaying. Mm -hmm. So the, the pathways, which seems sort of beautifully symbolic, are a mosaic of all, of many of the other areas found and created in your garden life, it sounds like. Yeah, they are. And they make room for your family to be part of your garden too, which is which is pretty nice. Sometimes we don't want to invite <laughs> others into our garden, but then then we do. <laughs> Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today, Eileen. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Eileen Flax is a landscape architect, gardener, restoration ecologist, and cook in Boulder, Colorado. Eileen covered some of these points in our conversation today, but I wanted to share her specific thoughts on the emerald ash borer making its way from east to west and having been found in Boulder, Colorado a few years ago. Boulder is not alone in its potential to be transformed by the loss of the ash. Much like the loss of American chestnuts to a fungal blight at the turn of the 19th century, and then the devastation of the American elm by a fungal disease carried by elm bark beetles in the mid 20th century. The city of Denver, for example, has more than 16,000 mature ash trees, one in six of the trees in the urban forest there are ash. According to state sources, as another example, the state of Ohio is home to more than 3.8 billion ash trees, about one in every 10 trees, and the loss of ash has created a void 
in the existing fragile ecosystem in Ohio already. All Ohio counties are currently under federal regulation for emerald ash borer. Of her own home city and its plight, Eileen reflects, trees aren't at home in Boulder. The only natives here are cottonwoods and willows in wet spots and conifers creeping down from the foothills. The other trees were planted to create our irrigated garden of a city. Between late and early frosts, Chinook winds and drought, the weather has it in for trees. Ash trees are a special breed. Though they wouldn't be here without human support, they've escaped cultivation and are volunteering to live where our cup overflows. They do this by leafing out late, dropping leaves early, bending and losing a limb or two in the wind, creating an abundance of seed. But they're not so well adapted that we consider them to be weeds. Most trees in our midst start their lives in nurseries, grafted and bald from inception. Peter Wolleben's The Hidden Life of Trees clarifies the distinctive quality of trees that live alongside their offspring. Interconnected by roots and mycorrhiza, these trees have lifelong relationships. The elders discipline the youth by limiting access to resources to ensure slow, solid growth, and the offspring support their parents in their decline. Being volunteers means that the ashes live in a community of trees that are communicating with one another. This is part of why the four green ashes in my backyard are beloved, says Eileen. Also, for their shade and habitat. Also, because they are so beautiful in the fall. Their clear yellow leaves against the blue sky fill me with gratitude. This is what color is for. She goes on, color is also the name of change, the emerald ash borer. Rapidly crossing the country on the wings of climate change, these critters are expected to kill every ash tree in their path. In Boulder, that means 15% of our tree cover things are going to be different, which isn't new. The City Beautiful movement spurred American elms to be planted on every main street. In the 1950s, when their vase-like arches were in their prime, Dutch elm disease took them out. Get ready, one colleague's forester grandfather told her grandmother, things are going to change. And that is the diagnosis for Boulder things are going to change. So-called high-value trees are being treated with pesticides. That's a lifelong commitment I can't stomach, says Eileen. Maybe if these trees were more significant or picturesque, but they're not. One is a fist tree having lost its leader to a Chinook. One is under the powered lines and was hacked with every line clearing. And the other two, are nothing special. I'm not willing to treat my ashes, to poison my backyard to hold on to these particular occupants. My garden is a conversation with nature and natural processes. I love making life and death decisions in this arena, 
but it remains a conversation and I'm committed to the listening part as well. This means making space for the unexpected, even these agents of destruction. But I'm sorry to say goodbye to my ash trees. There are telltale D-shaped holes in two of their trunks, and a lot more branches died back this summer. I'm spending time this fall basking in their beauty. I'm trying to scribe them in my memory so I can draw on them when I need them. I'm sure the oak, walnut, redbud, plums, and chokecherries growing nearby will appreciate the opening. As an accomplished landscape architect in her area, of her home gardener personal practice, Eileen writes, My garden is on a small scale, a sixth of an acre standard suburban lot. There's not a lot of area here, but the conversation I'm having with my garden doesn't need a lot of space. With the high country wilderness so accessible, many in my community see their connection with nature on an awe, A-W-E, some scale. It's important to me that my conversation with my garden occurs on a home-based scale in an everyday way, end quote. I like that conceptualization, don't you? This home-scale conversation we have with our gardens, they don't need a lot of space or awe or inputs. They need our presence, our listening, and our everyday ways to be just what we need where we are. As we tend toward the winter solstice in just one short week, I can't imagine a better conversation to be in than this one. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. To make your tax-deductible contribution of support to Cultivating Place, follow the support links at the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com. While you're there, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and the monthly newsletter. Thank you to everyone who makes this program possible. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our engineer is Sky Schofield. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.